Mark chapter 7 is where you want to turn. You know, in grade school, I can still remember the day uh, that I was sitting in the back seat of my dad's old beater, <laughs> and he drove up to a gathering of our friends with his horn blaring. It was kind of an odd moment in time. It was a Sunday morning. I remember we had left our church in our little church that my dad had planted and pastored, met in a school, and we were traveling from the school to another local church that had a baptismal because we were going to celebrate a bunch of baptisms. And by the time we pulled onto the lot of that second meeting place with the rest of our church having already beat my dad and our family there, my dad came around the corner and long before the church family, the people could see him, they could hear him coming and had everybody's attention as he came around the corner with his horn blaring. See, on the way there, something had happened where he apparently, with so much passion, had hit his horn that it literally stuck and froze in an on position. Now, my dad's not here, and he may tell you the story different, but like I said, he's not here. With a lot of passion and force, he hit the horn that caused it to stick. And I remember as a kid sitting in the back seat as we're driving along to the baptism, and people are quickly in front of him changing lanes to get out of his way because there's this maniac laying on his horn. Uh, but then I also remember the, the kind gestures that people would roll down their window back in the days that you'd roll down your window. And then the kind gesture that they'd wave our family's direction as then my dad would pass them by. And I remember my dad rolling down his own window, trying to holler out the window to explain what was actually happening, which only made things worse and people more agitated because now they've got someone yelling back at them. I mean, the look on people's faces was classic when we pulled onto the lot, but it was really the look on my dad's face that was so priceless because he was just absolutely bewildered, like had no idea what to do. As he drove onto the lot, he just lifted his hands from the steering wheel, which probably was more concerning to people then, is that now he's driving at them with his hands off the wheel, but trying to demonstrate to him that, that it really wasn't his fault. Now, as a kid in grade school, all that attention was something that was really unsettling, really uncomfortable, and for me, I just wanted to like get out of the car and go hide in the bushes. And it was something that cutting a few wires quickly fixed, because that's what someone did, is they got a pair of pliers, went under his steering wheel, and started ripping wires out, and then one by one clipping them until the horn finally uh, went off and was no longer making the awful noise. Now, what would you do if you're in that situation? Because really, a horn is meant to function and be used to communicate that there's a hazard or a problem, but instead it's just blaring, making a bunch of noise. It's not sounding off for any good reason at all. I mean, for most of us, I think we'd make the same decision my dad did, and that's that I'd rather be without a horn than feel this, this super unsettling, uncomfortable sense every time that I get into a car because of the persistence of the horn just blaring. Now, that might be the decision we'd make with a horn, but what if you made that same decision every time your check engine light came on? Like the check engine light pops on and, and, and what you start to think is rather than I know it's different than a stuck horn because a stuck horn isn't really getting, uh, it's not really getting its purpose across. It's not serving its purpose because all it's doing is, is giving this very unpleasant sound and irritating other people and getting their attention and all of that is not what you're wanting. But, but we'd all agree that there's this similar unsettling and uncomfortable feeling that ignites inside of us every time the little light on the dash illuminates in front of us. That uncomfortable feeling that you just go, oh, I don't want to see this right now. This is the last thing that I want to see. And there's a simple solution for it if it's really the last thing you want to see. And you don't have to cut wires like you're some bomb tech or something. You just drive to the hardware store or the auto parts store and you have them clear the code. As soon as they clear the code, the dashboard light turns off and all of a sudden you're back to your normal unstressful day. There's a simple solution to get rid of a check engine light. It's, I realize it's a silly illustration because the differences are very, very clear, but that's what I want to make clear to you is that the differences are clear. A stuck horn can be turned off because it isn't warning anyone of danger. However, a check engine light is exposing an issue to you in the engine of the car, beneath the surface, hidden away. There's a problem and maybe even a cataclysmic problem that needs attention. And so to just turn off the light in order to feel better about yourself and how you're doing wouldn't be a very wise decision at all. As unsettling and uncomfortable as it might be to see that little red light mock you as it instantly, it does, doesn't it? Instantly strips you of your peace and sanity as soon as it lights up. It's simultaneously attempting, though, to draw your attention to the source of the problem beneath the surface, under the hood, in the engine itself. It's just a symptom of the problem. It's a warning system that it's, it's installed in order to get you to look beneath the surface at the actual issue that's present. 
And because that's true, fixing the lights, and, or even if you just took maybe a dark piece of paper and covered the light up, it doesn't fix anything at all because the light's not actually the problem. It's the proof of the existence of a real problem beneath the surface. Now, imagine if you pulled up to a mechanic and just said, hey, I need you to fix my check engine light. Well, they would look at you and say, well, I, I think you want me to diagnose the problem. I'm going to run a diagnose. No, 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 no. I just want you to fix the check engine light. Well, no one would do that for you because they know that it's proof of an issue beneath the surface. Now, track with me. I'm telling you all of this because the encounter that Jesus has with us in this story, he's going to be approached by a group of people who are failing to see that basically the external warning lights that they're seeing, the brokenness of their lives, their external actions even, they're failing to see that those are supposed to function as evidence of a deep internal, even cataclysmic problem that exists inside of them. They're ready to clear the code just so that they don't have to see the warning sign any longer as if that fixes the problem. But the problem is a problem in the heart. And they're failing to see that connection. They're happy to clear the proverbial code, but they're unwilling to take the hard look under the hood at the condition of their own heart. Now, you'll read this with me in a moment, and you might not catch this at first glance, but this is a hugely significant passage in Mark's gospel. In fact, some would say this is the most dense of the theological teaching within Mark's gospel because it gets not just to the heart of Mark's gospel, but to the heart of the New Testament itself, to the heart of the whole book. The heart of God for all of humanity has not just been about external reform, but about an internal transformation that needed to take place. The check engine light comes on because we see that our actions are breaking the law and falling short of the glory of God, but it's to demonstrate to us that deep beneath the surface, our hearts are what the problem is. So here's your spoiler alert. Here's what the story is about. It's that the Christian message is not about external modification so much as it is about heart transformation. It's really not at all about external modification. It's simply about heart transformation. And you'll see in a moment, it's because, it comes up because a person can have clean hands and yet a dirty, broken, filthy heart, a rebellious heart, a messy heart. You can have clean hands and yet a filthy heart. In fact, read with me chapter seven, beginning in verse one. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. If you've got a pen or a pencil or maybe just some eyeliner, you might want to underline that little statement there because that's what the issue is. It's about the special way that the tradition of the elders had taught them to do. When they had come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold. These are traditions from the elders, like the washings of cups, of pitchers, copper vessels, and their dining couches. I mean, all of us have lived in a bachelor pad with a couch at the table. <laughs> or maybe it was just me who did and used two by fours to elevate it to the right height of the table. We had a lovely dining couch in that bachelor pad. But then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? Just push pause there for a second. You probably noticed beginning in verse three that Mark jumps into a, a different kind of uh, reporting here, where he's not just telling you, here's what happened in the life of Jesus. Here's the encounter that takes place. He then shifts into comment mode and basically commentary mode, where Mark doesn't do this often. He actually did it in one little section we studied last week, but where he'll jump into commentary mode and give us some insight into what's happening. He says they took issue with the fact that the guys were willing to eat with unwashed hands. And then he launches into the reason that that mattered to them is, well, because there's a tradition of the elders, and that's his commentary he adds to it. The reason he's doing this is because Mark is assuming there's some people who are going to read this in the future who aren't going to know these traditions. Now, we fit that category. But remember, the first century audience who's receiving this, he writes this in the 60s during terrible persecution. The early church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and both of them are facing persecution, and both of them are reading this story, and Mark wants to make sure that they don't overlook the significance of this if they didn't grow up in a Jewish village or community where they weren't used to hearing people stress about these kinds of things. And, and if we're willing to admit it, right from the get-go, we fit into the group of people, of those who aren't tracking with specifically the shock and scandal that's present here. 
We're meant to feel some tension in this moment, and instead we hear some guys complaining about people who don't wash their hands as thorough as they wish that they would. But in the story, they were shocked that Jesus' disciples would do this, eat with unwashed hands. And Jesus, in a moment, will become shocked by the fact that they will disregard the heart and the commandments of God. But for us, we're left in the middle of it all, kind of just faced with some confusion and kind of even bored at the thought of spending some time talking about whether or not we should wash our hands. Because it seems like that's the topic that's surfacing here. However, what really surfaces here, especially if you'll just push pause for a second and remove the specifics of just the hand washing and set it to the side, what you start to see is something that's shocking. The shocking thing is that it's extremely relevant to all of us. It's the passage that we dive into today. It shows a face-off between Jesus' true gospel and moralism. This is what it tables for us to discuss today, is the difference between the true gospel and legalism. That's what it shows us. And this just creates an example of it. In in fact, read in your Bible, beginning in verse 6, Jesus now answers them and says to them, Well, did Isaiah the prophet say of you, hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. He calls them hypocrites here. It's a theatrical term. Many of you probably already know this. It means play actors. It's literally translated the ones that wear the mask. So you picture someone who, who is hiding their true identity, wearing a mask to play a part in a theater setting, that he's saying that's what your whole life is. You're playing a part. You're wearing a mask. We know that this isn't real. In fact, Jesus in Matthew's gospel, he elaborates on this idea of them being hypocrites. And he says this. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs. Think of that imagery. You're beautiful on the outside, full of dead things on the inside. You're like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. He says in verse 8, you've laid aside the commandments of God in order to honor your own traditions, really above the commandments of God. That Greek word to lay aside, other translations say you've left the, the commands of God, or you've abandoned them, you've forsaken them, you've neglected them, disregarded even them. You could say it this way. You've deserted them wrongfully. In verse 9, he says, you've utterly rejected them. Now, you need to know, Jesus isn't anti-tradition. That's not what this is communicating. He's anti, he's against the fact that they've placed their opinions and traditions above God's revealed word and God's revealed heart. That's what the problem here is. And Jesus gives us an example of how they're doing this. Because just think of it. If this is in a public setting, and this is the showdown, they come and they bring their offense against Jesus and the disciples, and now he throws it back at them. They'd be like, "What? how how dare you say something like that? Make an accusation about us. So he launches right into it. Verse 9 again, he says, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you might keep your own traditions. For Moses, here's your example of how you're doing it. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have have or might have received from me is Corbin. Here's the translation of that word. That is a gift to God then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Jesus says, this is just one example that I'm giving you. And if you're tracking with the example, the word Corbin here, it's speaking of an offering that someone could say, I've set aside all that I have, my money or my land, and I'm calling that Corbin a gift set aside to God, where now your aging parents come and say, hey, we need help just with groceries. We need help with a place to live. And you as their child go, no, 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 I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. I'd love to help, but I gave all that I had to God. And so I can't help you because it's God's. It's like a clever tax accountant looking for a loophole and a workaround to keep money in your own pocket and keep you from doing the thing that God has asked you to do, which was to live generously and which was to honor your own family 
family, by declaring that their property belonged to God, they're all of a sudden freed from that obligation to care for their own aging parents. And it was what God had commanded that they do, that they care for their parents. But I'm giving money to God, they'd say. But they're really making a mockery of God, the, the very God that they're claiming to honor by doing it. And that doesn't seem to bother the religious leaders at all because it benefited them personally. And so Jesus is like, do you not see how you're doing this? And they're looking at Paul and he says, you're a hypocrite. And they're like, oh, please. And then he's like, well, I'll just, okay, fine. Let's talk about it. Here we go. And this is not the only thing you're doing like this. Listen, God never intended that the good principle of devoting something to the temple of God should be twisted in order to be used as a way to dishonor someone's family. And then in order to pad the pockets of the religious leaders. What should not have angered them did. That's the the disciples. They don't wash their hands like we think they should, like our elders have told us we should. And what should have angered them did not. And that was the fact that these people were dishonoring their parents and their God, but it was benefiting them. And so they were okay with it. These guys sound like, in this situation, they kind of sound like the CDC, though, coming. We've been through this, the wash your hands. Remember, it's COVID started. It was like... People, be responsible. Wash your hands often and this will all pass. And I don't know about you, but for me, I was really troubled by that because I thought, how in the world, do people really not wash their hands? Like, (laughs) wash your hands often. I come out of a bathroom looking like a surgeon. I'm a total germaphobe. I just walk around like this afterwards. I I don't understand how that was going to change anything at all. But apparently, maybe the most troubling thing that's come out of this whole era is that so few people were washing their hands before this. call them adults. It's crazy. But why why do they care so much? It's not because they're germaphobes. Why do they care about them, the disciples washing their hands? Well, it mattered because of the tradition of their elders. There's this tradition that was passed down to them from their elders. This was not a command of God, but the tradition that they held to is that they would take the equivalent of half an eggshell of water They'd pour it from the tip of their finger to run down their hand and down their arm. They'd then take a clenched fist and rub it into an open hand. And then they'd take an additional half eggshell of water and pour it down their fingertips once again, down their arms. It was this symbolic act that would be done publicly. This wasn't about hygiene, though. It was a religious move that was trying to make a statement about being clean versus those who were unclean. It had nothing to do with hygiene at all. In fact, the priests in the Old Testament were exclusively the only people that God asked to ceremonially wash. And they would do it before they'd offer a sacrifice and they'd do it before they entered into God's presence itself. Now think of this. Think of how distorted what God had had used as a good thing to communicate good truth. Think about how it became such a distorted thing by their elders keeping it as a tradition for everyone and requiring everybody to do it. Think about what God initially did. He instructed that the priests do this to wash before offering a sacrifice or entering God's presence. It would communicate God's holiness for everybody that saw. It also communicated that no priest, no person, not even a priest, were holy enough by their own effort to enter into the presence of God, that they needed to be washed from some outside source. That's what it communicated. It communicated a level playing field for all of humanity, that all of humanity would need a washing. All of humanity needed a substitute. All of humanity needed a sacrifice. It was all just pointing ahead to Jesus, that no one was worthy to approach God without a sacrifice and a covering and without a washing, a cleansing first. Now, the human tradition took that and instead created an us versus them mentality where, hey, we're the clean ones because we're the ones who do this. We're washed clean before God. And, and, and because we do what's required to be made clean, now we're clean while you're dirty. We're acceptable rather than, than defiled. We're good enough rather than needing a covering any longer because look what we do. This is our practice and you ought to do it too. And you're wrong and you're separate from us if you fail to do it. Now think about it. Jesus would argue with the religious leaders that we are all unclean before God. He would agree with them that all of us are unclean. He would disagree, I should say, with the source of their uncleanness. The source of their uncleanness wasn't wasn't about their hands. Yeah, he agreed. We all need cleansing. But but he wasn't even, think of it, he wasn't even just dismissing external things like, no, what you do and say doesn't matter. He's not saying that even. 
Because think of it, Jesus would teach, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Yeah, he's speaking in hyperbole, but if your hand offends you, cut it off. He's speaking in hyperbole, but he's saying, take drastic measures with your sin. Your actions and attitude mattered so much to God that he watched his son bleed to death to pay for them. They do matter. He's not saying that they don't. He is, however, criticizing their version of cleansing and what clean looks like. Because it was uniquely connected to their external reform, And it failed to address the actual matter, the matter of their heart. Because the heart of the matter for all of humanity is the matter of the heart. That's what Jesus was trying to boil this all down to. All throughout scripture, we can look at the Bible and just view it as a bunch of rules and restrictions. Do you not understand though, that the thing that God is after is your heart and the thing he's trying to point to is the brokenness, the problem, the rebellion that exists in your heart. And Jesus, what he does then is he slightly shifts his attention in our story towards the multitude from from responding to the frustration of the Pharisees to now looking at the whole multitude around him and saying this, verse 14, and when he called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand this. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Think this through. Nothing outside of a man can make him unclean. What comes out of a man reveals that he already is unclean. It's like a check engine light that blinks on, flashing on your dash, revealing that your attitude, your action, your speech, think of it, reveal your heart. The things that people see about me are not needing to change so that I become a clean person. No, they're needing to change because they realize, they, they reveal what a broken person I am on the inside. Jesus would say it this way. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Another translation, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That your actions, your attitude, your speech even flows out of the condition of your heart. In James, he says, should, should salt water come out of a freshwater spring? Well, no. If the source is good, then what comes out of it will be good. But what comes out of it, if it's bad and broken, and in the context, he's talking about the way we speak to people. He says it reveals a problem with the source itself, with the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus now shifts his attention. So he goes to the whole multitude and says, guys, we're so stressed about what's going on outside and what we eat and how we touch things and whether or not we wash. Don't you understand? It's what's inside of you that's defiling you and keeping you from being clean, making you unclean, separating you from God. And now he pulls aside with just the disciples to speak with them alone. Verse 17, and when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the the parable. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man that defiles a man from for from within out of the heart of men produce evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications and murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness and An evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Okay, what Jesus makes abundantly clear here is that the problem is really that you can have clean hearts and yet a filthy heart that's far from God, that's separated from him. It's not what goes into a man because Jesus even says, because what comes into him, it comes out of him. It's actually the Greek word that from Greek to Latin English, we get the word latrine. He's saying like all of that ends up in a toilet somewhere. That's not what you should be stressing about. But what comes out of a man in your attitudes and actions and your speech, that's what you should be looking at because what it does is it reveals the contents of your heart. It reveals what's within. Food ends up in a stomach and then eventually in a toilet. But sin, a rebellion against God, it, it, it begins and exists inside the heart. See, I told you as we began, this is the hugely significant thing In Mark's gospel, in the New Testament, in all of the book, because Christianity is not just about external reformation, about behavioral reformation. It's about internal heart transformation. That's what the gospel is after. Now, now real quick, this story, it logs the, the fact that this group of people, the Pharisees, 
come and, and, and start to push back on Jesus. So it's fair and fitting for us just to consider for a moment who these people are. There are two leading religious groups that come to Jesus actually in this moment. The scribes, they're more white-collar. They're more involved with politics. They don't believe in the supernatural or an afterlife. That's one group of people. And then the Pharisees, they're more blue-collar, more popular amongst the people because of that. They're less connected politically than the Sadducees were. And they're coming to push against Jesus because the Pharisees themselves were all about tradition. In fact, historians tell us in their own writings themselves, like the Mishnah, tell us, and and even the Babylonian Talmud tell us that they had built what they referred to, and I quote, as a fence around the law. That they looked at the law of God, and then they set up a perimeter around it to protect it. Now think about this. We understand the idea of a fence. You set up a fence to protect something that's valuable. Whether that's your home, or whether that's the new grass seed you just planted, or sod's expensive. You do sod, you put a fence around it to keep your kids away from it. I get it. We understand that. The problem with the fence, though, is every time we erect one, We separate people. There's someone who's left outside of it. What they did is they erect a fence around the law, seemingly a good motivation, but what they did is made an us versus them experience for all of the world around them where they were meant to be used as a light to the Gentiles themselves. There were two categories of laws. They had the written law. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament that they were commanded to follow, but then what they did is they added traditions, these oral traditions on top of those that were handed down generation after generation of their made-up rules to keep them from even getting close to breaking any of the mandates of the law of God. So be fair, initially their motivation was right. Now tragically, they made a terrible miscalculation though. Their motivation is that they're coming out of Babylonian exile and the reason they end up in Babylon is because they refuse to obey God. And so God said, fine, you didn't obey me with Observing the Sabbath for 490, well, so fine, you owe me 70 years of back tax, basically, and so I'm going to give you 70 years in captivity. So they're coming out of it like, hang on, we can't go back there again. We can't dishonor our God again. That was the good motivation, but the terrible miscalculation comes that they seemingly, maybe even unknowingly, drew the conclusion that compliance to God was his highest value. That that's what God was after all along. That being good and doing good or doing right was the way that we would reconnect with God and that we would stay in right standing with God. But the Christian message is not about behavioral reformation. It's about heart transformation. You see, they could make as many new rules as they wanted, but it would not fix the problem because it could not fix the problem. Because the problem is beneath the surface. They're looking at a warning light on a dash and, and assuming that all we got to do is just get it to shut off so that people can't see the evidence that something beneath the surface is actually faulty and wrong and broken and not functioning the way that God intends for it too. So they're trying to get rid of, wipe the code, don't let people see the blinking light, but all the while they're ignoring the condition of their own heart. Don't miss this. The purpose of the law of God is to describe what the perfect place where Jesus is king will look like in the future That's what it's going to look like. If you follow the Ten Commandments and you go, what would it be like to be a part of a society like this, where people live this way? It will be what it's like in heaven to come. But the other reason the law functions and serves us is it's to function as a mirror, Scripture says, and a schoolmaster. A mirror not to show us how pretty and perfect we are. This is not us coming to the mirror and saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, and expecting to hear back It's you. You've got your stuff together. Look at you. You look perfect and flawless. No, it's that the mirror can't lie and says back to us, well, didn't you? Who's the most fairest? Who's the one without flaws? Who's the one who who doesn't have problems? It's not you. And we can try our best to meticulously follow the law, but all the law does is function, Scripture says, as a mirror to expose our own flaws, to, to, to help us to see our own imperfection. Romans chapter 3 says it this way. It says, For no one has ever been made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It's a mirror that shows us our brokenness, but then it's a schoolmaster and a tutor that's meant to point us not just to our need for a savior, but point us in the direction of Jesus himself. This is what Galatians 3 says. It says, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, Jesus said our heart was so twisted and so distorted that mere reform was not an option for us. Instead, rebirth would be our only hope. You know this. 
John's Gospel, chapter 3, he says, Don't be surprised because I'm telling you that you've got to be born again. That, that, that reborn from above, spiritual transformation to be renewed and sanctified. The transformation of your heart is something only Jesus can do. And it's what he requires. The prophet Ezekiel had, had foretold that this is what God will do. He says, God will come and say, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh in its place. I will then set my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's what the prophet foretold. And that's what Jesus is doing. And right now in this showdown, Jesus is trying to push everyone's attention back inward towards a heart and their desperate need for a heart transplant. Whereas so many people just get hung up instead on what they need to do to fix themselves, to erase the dashboard light, to no longer have people see their flaws and insecurities or their hurts and, and, and all of their issues. We focus so much there, and Jesus is trying to pull the focus back over here and saying, but what you need is heart surgery. Okay, let me speak directly to you then. If that's what this is teaching us, then please don't miss this. Here's our real problem. Our real problem is that each of us are self-proclaimed philosophers. Each of us are our own sociologists. Each of us function as preachers in that we are constantly preaching to ourselves an ideology. We're constantly preaching to ourselves a message about what we think will make society right, about what we think will make our relationships right, about what we think will make us right again. Here's the problem. All of us, we're philosophers, sociologists, and preachers, and what we preach to ourselves is the ideology that we think will work. More than you hear my message, you hear your own all day long. More than I hear my own message to you, I hear my own internal voice all day long. And the internal voice inside of us is telling us what we actually think is, is going to make the world right and society right, what's going to make our relationships right, what's going to make me right and clean again. This is the problem, is that the gospel that we preach to ourselves is often not the gospel of Jesus' grace, but it's... It's the gospel, quote unquote, of moralism, of legalism. This is where we find ourselves in the stories that we have to recognize whether we deny it or not. The, the truth is, it's not an argument about whether or not we preach to ourselves. We constantly have an internal dialogue that's taking place. There's a voice inside of us that's constantly preaching to us about how we view the world and what's going to make it right and what's going to make me clean. That is always existing. It's not an argument about whether or not it's there. It's an argument about whether or not it's telling us the right message. Is it teaching us a gospel of grace or is it preaching to us a quote-unquote gospel of legalism, of moralism? You see, Jesus' gospel, what it does in contrast to moralism, what Jesus' gospel does is it simplifies all of God's commands, all of them, exposing all of them as matters of the heart and boiling them all down to just my choice to love God and love people. Because remember, Jesus says, on these two hang all of the law and the prophets. All the expectation of God can be fulfilled if we just will love him and love people. What Jesus does then is, is he steps in and pays for, with his own blood, my shortcomings in sin. By Jesus himself, those are paid for because he becomes my substitute and my sacrifice. What Jesus does is he frees me from the burden, the yoke, the weight of the law. He says, come unto me. If you're heavy, laden, and, and weary, and needing rest, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you'll find life. The reason he can say take my yoke is because he's already exchanged what we were under and taken it upon himself and paid for all that we had done to, broke, to break the law. Now, now, that's the gospel of Jesus that tells me that all that God wants from me is to love him and love others. And when I fail, Jesus has stepped in as my substitute, that that's the internal preaching, the message that ought to be being uh, told and touted and preached and heralded inside me all day long, every day. But here's the difference between that and moralism. The quote-unquote gospel of moralism, what it does is it multiplies God's expectations of me building a fence around them and applying pressure to upkeep and safeguard all of them. What moralism does, does is it enslaves me forever under the crushing weight of the law, 
under the crushing weight of all that I feel, this heavy burden. So which gospel are we preaching to ourselves? Because it's not a question of whether or not we are doing this internally. It's a question of which message we're doing it with. I just want to give you a few little thoughts of application as we wrap up. About Jesus' gospel. The first is this, in this passage, I think Jesus is making it clear that following Jesus, the message of the gospel, the, the, the point of the whole book, following Jesus, is not about external modification. It's about internal transformation. That's the first thing, that, that following Jesus is not about that external modification. It's about internal transformation. You see, the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees was not just about the distinction between their tradition and God's law. It was also about two very different views of sin and of holiness. No one can be made clean by their attempts to clean themselves up. External modification is not our goal because it's a failed goal. I can, I can tell myself, though, this is the internal voice where I'm preaching to myself, that I'll clean up my act and then I'll go to God. I can tell myself, gosh, I need to work through these issues. Even God, I'm sorry. But before I'd approach you for forgiveness or love or affirmation, I'm going to stay away and say, God, I'm so sorry, but I'll fix this. I'll work through this. I'll even put myself on spiritual timeout over here and I'll approach you again once I feel better about myself. Once I feel like I've helped to reform myself, once I've made myself more presentable, then I'll come back into your presence, assuming that I've done enough hand washing to now all of a sudden be okay with you. And Jesus was teaching that the only way that someone could be made clean and acceptable to God was through a complete change, a transformation of who they were internally in their heart, not merely them trying to be good enough outwardly. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was teaching that it doesn't matter how you live. It's not saying that. That your decisions, your actions, that they don't matter to God. That's not true at all. They completely matter. And remember, he watched his son bleed to death on a cross because of the brokenness and rebellion in my life. Jesus is simply teaching, though, that, that modifying your external behavior will never, because it can never, make you good enough and acceptable to God, which is what the Pharisees were showing up trying to do and trying to teach other people. That was their goal all along. So the first thing for you to chew on is that following Jesus is not about some external modification. It needs to be focused on internal transformation. God, I can't do this. My brokenness makes me run to you for forgiveness and love. My brokenness doesn't keep me from going to you until I feel like I can fix it and glue all the broken pieces back together and then show my face again. That's not what it is at all. There's condemnation and there's conviction. Condemnation looks at our sin and drives us from the presence of God. Conviction lets me see my sin, my brokenness, and I go back to God in confidence that there's still a home to go home to, that he still loves me and cares for me. Here's the second thing to chew on. It's that following Jesus means adjusting your life to Scripture, not the other way around. If you're going to follow Jesus, it means adjusting your life to Scripture, not the other way around. He says to them in verse 7, he says, you laid aside the commandment of God in order to hold on to your own traditions. And if you fail to honor the authority of Scripture, then you fail to worship and honor God himself. But what they did is they held their traditions and their opinions above the Scriptures. It didn't matter what God said about how they treated other people. They made up their own new rules. It didn't matter what God says about their sexuality, they had their own opinions. It doesn't matter what God says about their family or their finances, they had their own set of excuses. It didn't matter about what God said about fill in the blank, because they had a way of reworking and reframing all of it so that it fit what they wanted. But you can't follow Jesus, and yet at the same time say, I'm following Jesus, but I reject the basis of his life and teaching. I reject the scripture, the teachings of the scripture themselves. If you do that, Jesus looks and says, you're a hypocrite. You're two-faced. You're wearing a mask. You're pretending to be something that you're not. If you're not willing to yield to me as I lead you, but instead you're going to distort things to justify yourself, especially the things that are meant to show you your own brokenness. You distort them to come and say that you're fine anyways, then you're missing it. Listen, I can want the benefits of following Jesus. I can want hope. I can want peace and, and forgiveness and affirmation and love. But the truth is, I just don't always want to obey him in order to find those experiences. Jesus would tell them in John 14, he says, anyone who loves me is going to obey me. In fact, under this heading of following Jesus means adjusting my life to scripture and not the other way around. 
Under this heading, I just want to mention that you and I, we need to be really careful to keep what God says and expects separate from, categorically separate from, what my preferences and my personal convictions are. Those are two very different things. And we need to be sure in separating those that that we aren't guilty of placing the pressure and weight on other people to live under or live up to our preferences and our opinions or convictions because if we're pressuring people to do that, that's legalism that we're throwing over top of them. We might have preferences or opinions. You might have an opinion about the way you should dress on a Sunday morning or about people being here in a timely manner and it might irk you and you might want to go give them an earful, but we need to be careful to categorically keep things different from what God says and expects versus our opinions, convictions, and preferences because they're very different categorically. Here's another thing to chew on and that's that following Jesus means being in an intimate relationship with God. That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's about being in an intimate relationship with God. He didn't just oppose the Pharisees holding their tradition above the scriptures. He also drew attention to the fact that they missed the very heart and point of the scriptures. In verse 6, he says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's really far from me. He wasn't just saying that they're blowing it. He was saying that God was after their heart all along. That God was after a relationship, a connection with them. And if you just look at the book, even in your home with your children, and all you do is emphasize the rules, then you're in danger of missing the point of the book. You're in danger of simply trying to either yourself do enough or put pressure on other people to do enough rather than trusting that Jesus himself has done enough for you. Because the purpose of the book is not a yoke of of bondage or weight and pressure. The purpose of the book is to introduce you to a person who desires an intimate relationship with you and did everything that was needed for you to make that a reality. Hey, I don't know what you think about Christianity. I don't know even what brings you here. You you might look at this as as I'm talking through these things and go, this makes no sense to me because I know that Christianity is about this external reform that needs to be taking place. I know that that's what makes someone right and that's what makes them a Christian if that's what you think you've missed it. It's so very different than that. The gospel is not a list of requirements of what you must do to reach and please God or you making your best attempt to get God's, a distant, detached God's attention to notice you, the gospel is the story about a God who left heaven to come and rescue you, who did everything that was needed to be done for you. Gospel, good news, is the simple translation. The gospel is just that. It's news, not a list of requirements. Every other religion in the world is just that a list of requirements of what you must do to reach and please God. The gospel is different. It's news, past tense, information about what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ that you must believe and embrace by faith. And that is what transforms the heart. And that is what reconnects a life back to God. That is what the gospel is. See, the gospel is about being clean from the inside out, not the outside in. And that's the problem is that all of us view it the opposite. That we can try so very hard and yet we're slapped with the reality that that we're inconsequential. We know that that's true and that we can't figure it out. We can't try hard enough. And yet we fight and we fight and we fight. But we have to realize we're fighting against Jesus himself if that's the fight we're fighting in. You see, the story ends in this tension that he's telling them, you've got to have a clean heart. But this story will lead to the end of Mark's story. And the end of the story of the Gospel of Mark ends with Jesus on a cross. Heaven's answer to your brokenness and uncleanness. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says it this way, For God made him Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. See, the Christian message is not just about behavioral reformation. It's about heart transformation. Do me a favor, close your Bible. Here's what's so hard about this. The difference between the true gospel and and the quote-unquote gospel of moralism. Here's what's so hard about this. What's so hard is that self-deception is real and really powerful. Is that we can read these stories and be like, man, these idiots... Like, they just don't get it. 
whether it's about their washings or any other external modification that they're trying to do, we can look at them objectively as if we've taken ourselves out from underneath the tension that we're meant to feel in a moment like this for us to check the, not just our own heart, but our own messaging of what we preach to ourselves. You see, because of self-deception, I actually think it's almost impossible for us to have anything other than a distorted view of ourselves. And for us to read something like this and go, no, this isn't me. Self-deception is such a powerful way that it can make it really difficult for us to know even what gospel we really preach to ourselves. The true gospel of Jesus' grace, or is it the gospel of moralism? So how do we know if we're living in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus, or if we're living under the burden of legalism? How do we know the difference? Well, I'll tell you this much. I can be sure that I'm no longer living preaching the gospel of Jesus' grace to myself if my view of God is that he's inconsistent and not trustworthy. If that's how you, in your heart of hearts, view him, that he's inconsistent and not trustworthy, it's because your your very confidence that, that you could have in him is linked to, it's shaped by how well you're performing, and if you're performing well, you feel confident that he'll be faithful to you. If that's how you view him, as inconsistent and not trustworthy, then the gospel you preach to yourself is not Jesus' gospel of grace. I can be sure that if, if, if this is the message I'm preaching to myself, then I'm no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus' grace if I view the scripture, not just God, but even the scripture, the law, as either a crushing weight or I view it as proof of my own righteousness. I can look at it and go, man, this makes me feel better about me. Or I look at it on the opposite extreme and say, gosh, this is a crushing and depressing thing. I don't even want to look again. Rather than viewing it as a mirror that exposes my own brokenness and yet simultaneously as a display of the beauty of the grace and love of God towards me in Jesus Christ. If it's not telling me that I'm far worse than I'd imagined and yet simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed to be true, then I'm not believing the true gospel, and I'm not preaching that true message to myself. I can be sure that I'm not preaching Jesus' true gospel of grace when my view, not just of God and of Scripture, but my view of the world is marked by resentment rather than marked by compassion. When I view the world full of resentment rather than compassion, because here's the truth, I am going to resent those who don't try as hard as I do. Because I'm living under the burden of the law and I'm trying so hard and I'm giving so much and gosh, what's wrong with you people that you're not trying as hard as me? Because if only everyone tried as hard as me, this place would be so much better off. Or it's because you look at someone else and you see their success and you see that they seem so effortlessly to live out their life and their faith and you resent them because you realize they must be trying harder than me and I'm so exhausted, I've got nothing left to give And so I can't love them or care for them. All I have is resentment and anger towards them because I can't stand being around them because they remind me of my own insecurities and brokenness. It's not just that I can tell which gospel I'm preaching to myself based on my view of God and of Scripture, but even the way that I view the world around me. And I can be sure that I'm no longer preaching a gospel of grace to myself if my view of myself is in any way, if it, looks, if it looks like anything different from what Jesus says about me. If my view of myself, I view myself any way other than the way that Jesus sees me, then I'm not teaching and preaching to myself the gospel of grace each and every day. If I see myself different than Jesus sees me, Yes, he sees me as broken, so broken that like sheep without a shepherd, they needed the good shepherd to come and lay his life down for the sheep. But not just as a sheep that had wandered off, because lost was redefined by Jesus, not just as worthless and a waste, lost was redefined as needing to be found. You remember Luke 15, don't you? The lost coin that was worth searching for all night long. The lost sheep that was worth risking, abandoning so much, leaving and risking so much behind in order to pursue the one, the lost sons, the two sons, a younger one and an older one. A younger one who left the father's house 
to go pursue his own pleasures in rebellion. But when he came to his senses and remembered there was still a home to go home to, there was still a man, a person, who called himself his father, that he started the long walk home. But track with me, he wasn't truly home until the voice of the father was louder than his own. Because like you and me, we walk back to the father recognizing our brokenness, but what we're saying to ourselves is the same thing the young son in Jesus' story was saying, that dad, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna earn this. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Just call me a slave, but I'll earn it. I'll pay everything back. I'll make it right again. I'll earn the title again. He wasn't truly home until the voice of the father was louder than his own and the voice of the father embraced him and said, my son is home, let's celebrate. I know that I'm not preaching the true gospel of Jesus about me when I live like the younger son, not truly home yet, but still saying, God, I promise I'll do better and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to earn it and deserve it finally and then you can call me your son. Neither am I the older son who was not lost because of his badness, but because of his self-described goodness. Father, I've always been here. He left you. He doesn't deserve to be celebrated, but I deserve all this and more because all this time I've never left. All this time I've never failed you. I'm entitled to this and more. We're like the older brother when our self-righteousness shields us from our own understanding of our deep need for God, or when our own self-righteousness all of a sudden is wielded by us as a sword against God to tell him what he owes us and what we deserve. And so instead of going to him as a savior to rescue me, I go to him demanding, you owe me. I'll tell you what message you preach yourself based on how you view yourself. If I view myself any way other than the way that Jesus views me, I'm preaching a false gospel to myself. You know, in that story Jesus told about the two sons, there's one safe place in that story. The point of the story is to reveal that safe place, and it was inside the embrace of the father. But it took humility on the younger son's part to recognize his need for that embrace, and that humility was something that his brother lacked and refused to have to go, Jesus, I'm just willing to, to accept that embrace and the covering that comes with it for my sin and shame and brokenness, and I'm willing to stay here because this is where my identity is found, is inside your arms as one, yes, broken and messy, but deeply loved, worse than I'd ever thought, but far more loved than I'd ever hoped to be true. If, if you're preaching a false gospel to yourself, I can tell you with certainty You'll, you'll know it to be true based on your view of God, of Scripture, of the world, and even your view of yourself. You see, the cross tells me that I am completely lost and yet infinitely valuable and loved by him. Jesus was saying that the biggest war that we fight is a war that rages in the heart. And even for us, the people of God, that that war that we fight is still a war that exists, a war to embrace and to preach to ourselves in the world a gospel of grace or a gospel, quote-unquote gospel, of moralism, of legalism.